Great. So if you've got a Bible, we're going to continue our Sermon on the Mount series. We've got to we're getting to the end of Matthew chapter 5. Uh, so you try, try and find Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to be starting in verse 43. Um, this sermon really carries on from the one a couple of weeks ago. And so if um, you missed that, please do get online. It's kind of, it, it's the, the summing up really, it's, it's the final of six you have heard that it was said statements that Jesus is speaking into. And it really, you can, you can sum it up this way. Jesus is, is, is addressing our response as his disciples that our response to evil is not to do nothing but to love. That the invitation isn't just to do nothing, but actually it's towards love. And he defines what that means, that this is love in action. This is love without limits. It's a love without a boundary. Uh, and so you go the extra mile towards your enemy and you love them. And it has the capacity to transform human relationships and to change society. It's quite an amazing invitation, isn't it? So let me read Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 43. Let me. We're doing a double recording this morning, just in case things don't work. So Matthew 5, 43 says this. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what, will your, what reward will you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what are you doing out of the ordinary? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So we're just going to go line by line. Let me just pray. Father God, I thank you that your presence is here. We feel your spirit with us. And as we gather around your word, I pray that you just continue to minister to us. Speak into the depths of the, the parts within us that we dare admit to ourselves or reveal to you. And I pray that your spirit would just reach into those depths and bring transformation this morning and healing and wholeness. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So we're just going to go line by line. Just going to bring this uh, teaching this morning. So verse 43 says, You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, this is the sixth and kind of final, um, you have heard that it was said statement that Jesus is going to address. Now, we know from what we've looked previously is when Jesus is saying, you have heard that it was said, he's taking something from the Old Testament, the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And he's bringing some teaching. He's saying, this is what you think it means. Let me unpack what it really means. But this one's a little bit different because love your neighbor is found in Leviticus. Found in Leviticus 19, verse 18, it says, Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. So we know that's directly from Scripture. Jesus is saying, you've heard that it was said. But then, in Matthew 5, it's slightly different. Because he says, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor, but hate your enemy. Hate your enemy appears nowhere in Scripture. That is not in the pages of Scripture whatsoever. So we need to unpack a little bit about what Jesus is addressing here. So I'm going to do two things. We're going to look at the love your neighbor and then the hate your enemy bit. Okay, so loving your neighbor. This is what Jesus quotes in Matthew 22 when, he's, um, when someone's trying to catch him out. Uh, a teach, uh, um, a, uh, an expert in the law tries to t- catch him out and says, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus says, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. 
That's the first and greatest commandment. And the second is exactly like it, just like it, which is Leviticus 19, 18, love your neighbor as yourself. So who is your neighbor? That's got to be the question, isn't it? Who's your neighbor? When you're loving your neighbor as you love yourself, who is your neighbor? Well, that was one of the debates at the time of Jesus. Who exactly is my neighbor? Who am I meant to be loving? And the context of Leviticus 19 actually helps us understand a little bit about who our neighbor actually is. Leviticus 19 um, talks about, um, let me read it to you. Leviticus 19, starting in verse 15, it says, Do not act unjustly when deciding a case. Do not be partial to the poor or give preference to the rich. Judge your neighbor fairly. Do not go about spreading slander among your people. Do not jeopardize your neighbor's life. I am the Lord. Do not harbor hatred against your brother. Rebuke your neighbor directly, and you will incur guilt because of him. And you will not incur guilt because of him. Do not take vengeance or bear a grudge against a member of your community, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now, it seems really clear there in Leviticus 19 that the neighbor is being described as the people immediately around you. Look at what what it says. Your people, your neighbor, fellow Israelites, The neighbors are the people that are directly in relationship with you. Do you know, I think God knew in that moment that the people we live closest to can be among the most difficult people to live with. Love them to bits, but we know them more than anybody else, don't we? And they can sometimes be the most challenging people to live with. Our immediate family members, relatives, distant family members, church members, people in our neighborhood, there can be occasions when we find those relationships strained And the call of God in loving your neighbor is to love those closest to you. It's not just about those closest to us. It's not just about those that we're related to. If you carry on in Leviticus 19, in verse 33, it says, When an alien resides with you in your land, so God now starts to include the foreigner starts to include those that are a little bit distant, a little bit further. You must not oppress him. You will regard the alien who resides with you, in, uh, uh, with you as a native born among you. You are to love him as yourself, for you were aliens in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So actually, they start to expand this idea of who is our neighbor. And so the people of God are to love the foreigner as well as the close relative. Israel had foreigners who had come to their land for work, for opportunity, and Israel, God is calling the people of God to show hospitality, to treat them well, to love them well, to welcome them into the community, to be one with them as their own family. If we find that any relationship in our life is strained, those closest to us, those that we have views of those that are maybe coming into our nation, those that are around us, if we have views that are strained, God is saying that is not okay. I call you to love them as I've loved them. So the Old Testament gives a clear definition on who a neighbor is. A neighbor is everyone who comes across our lives. And God asked the people of God to love their fellow man and woman and to love the foreigner as well. So that's what it means to love your neighbor. But Jesus goes on and says, you've heard that it says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. As I said, there's nowhere in the pages of scripture where it says, hate your enemy. But Israel had a lot of enemies. They had a lot of people that were against them. And so the teaching over the time of the Pharisees and the rabbis and the teachers of the law 
began to communicate that we've got all of these enemies and we need to stand up against them and we need to be against them. And so the teaching had started to come that, that it was love your neighbor. We can see that in scripture, but actually we're going to tell you to hate your enemy. Why? Well, think what it's like to live constantly under the threat of losing your life. They lived with the Roman soldiers who would punish them for doing wrong. Even the temple area had hundreds of soldiers waiting to arrest any kind of uproar that would happen. The people were living under military dictatorship for around 600 years. They'd been living under the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, the Egyptians, and now Rome. There was a whole history of being oppressed. And so what are we going to do? We're going to fight back. We've had enough. So we're going to love our neighbors, but we're going to hate our enemies. On top of that, it wasn't just their enemies, but then they had the tax collectors. We see it referenced in this scripture, the tax collectors, those that were their own Jews that had gone and worked for the enemy. Well, they're our enemy. If you're not with us, then you're against us. So you've got the tax collectors who were making money for the Romans themselves so they could become rich. And then you've got the outsiders, the Samaritans and the Gentiles. They considered all these to be enemies. And so the teaching had become love your enemy. Sorry, love your neighbor, but hate your enemy. So Jesus picks up Leviticus 19 and goes beyond what the teaching of the day was. It's not just about care and loyalty for those people that you know that are closest to you, but, and, and not just the immigrants, not just the refugees, not just the people that are coming into our nation, but actually the call of God is to love your enemy. But why? Why is the call of God to love our enemies? Because God loves his enemies. It's the nature of God that once we were enemies of God, and he loved us. Colossians 1.21 says, Once you were alienated and hostile in your minds, expressed in your evil actions. So we were enemies of God. Romans goes on and says in Romans 5 verse 10, While you were enemy, God's enemies, you were reconciled to him through the death of his son. God loves us whilst we were enemies. And you might can say, I wasn't ever an enemy of God. There's moments in my day where I'm an enemy of God because I go in my own direction. And scripture says that we were his enemies and in that moment, he chose to die for us. Therefore, we're called to love our enemies as God has loved us. The mark of our maturity is defined by our love. And the greatest act of love is love for an enemy. We reflect our Heavenly Father when we love our enemies. You know, I took my car for its MOT this week. Always a nerve-wracking moment, isn't it, when you take your car in for its MOT. And my normal mechanic wasn't there. But I walked in and spoke to another mechanic. I instantly knew it was the son of my normal mechanic. It doesn't particularly look like him. Little family resemblance, but not much. But the mannerisms were exactly the same. The way he just moved and the way he said things and did things, I was like, you're your father's son. Didn't know it, but could just tell by the mannerisms. See, we reflect our heavenly father when we love our enemies. It's a family likeness. It's what we're called to do. It's who we're called to be. Verse 45 says, so that you may be children of your father in heaven. 
That's not a salvation thing. It's not saying do this in order to get saved. It's saying you are saved, and so you will start to look like your father in heaven. The children carry the family resemblance of the father. The mechanic's son acts like the mechanic because they're related, and we start to act like our father who loves his enemies. So how? How do we love our enemies? Do you know what I love about Jesus? Is he's immensely practical. It's not like here's some pie-in-the-sky concept you've got to kind of grapple with. He says, let me land it in something you could practice this week. And he says in verse 44, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Pray for your enemies. In praying for our enemies, we start to see them as God sees them. In prayer, we stand side by side with them, praying to God for them. You know, prayer is the litmus test of love. Are there people that you struggle to pray for? Persist in praying. Prayer is where God changes us and changes our heart towards our enemy to be more like his heart towards enemies. He says, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. It says, for he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Jesus starts to talk about the weather. So we Brits can relate to Jesus a little bit more than we ever thought we could because we're obsessed with the weather. And Jesus is saying, he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. See, Jesus starts to look at how the world has been created and says, do you notice something about the world that God has created that displays something of the nature and character of God? Now, I was driving in this morning, and um, often we're driving in, and it's through fields that are just lush green fields. But there was one field this morning as I looked and drove in that I saw it wasn't quite as green as it has been previously. It's starting to look a little bit brown. It's interesting, isn't it? We can look at a green, lush field and think, God's abundance, God's blessing. Isn't God good? And we look at a brown, barren field, and automatically we think, not so blessed. Just a bit dead. It can be so easy to think of green vegetation is God's friend and the dry ground is God's enemy. Jesus in this verse says that is really bad theology. It's really bad understanding because God does not work that way. Just imagine two farmers. You've got two farmers that, have, that are, 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 are working adjacent fields. One farmer is just, he pays his wages to his work as well. He doesn't cheat on the weighing of things and his taxes. He is a good farmer, whereas the other farmer, he is wicked. He doesn't pay his, his workers very well. Uh, he cheats on measuring things and tells people there's more in there than there is, and he doesn't pay his taxes. Jesus says the farmer who is good will receive the same weather as the farmer who is bad. They both get the same life-giving rain. They both get the same sunshine. God does not treat the wicked the way they should be treated. God is fair and loving and will cause the rain and the sun to come upon both good and evil. Jesus has got such a God-saturated view of the world. He sees how God works. And there's something in the weather that reveals the generosity of God. God does not treat people as they deserve. Does that make you happy this morning? Good. Good. Makes me delighted because I know I don't deserve. I know I don't deserve, but God is a God who gives beyond what is deserved. 
Now, Jesus firmly believes that God will put things right. This isn't an, an ignorance towards injustice. That's not what this is about. This moment is about a period of pure grace and generosity that is available to all because God loves all. We read in Psalm 145 at the start, the Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and great in faithful love. The Lord is good to everyone. Can you say that? The Lord is good to everyone. You, me, the person you dislike, the person you really like, the person you're confused by, that group of people that confuse you, that part part of society that confounds you. God is good to everyone. All eyes, it goes on in verse 15, all eyes look and you give them their food at the proper time. You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. God is generous. He is a generous God who loves those that hate him and wants to give them opportunity to turn and to receive his love. He gives them both rain and sunshine. That is who God is. God's love goes beyond limits, which is why Jesus is calling his followers to say, you need to love in a way that goes beyond the limits of of your defined enemies. And this loving is not simply an emotion that we experience. I've just got to wait until I feel a bit of love towards that person. When I feel a bit of love, then God, you're working on my heart. And that's really good. Thank you. We're talking about an attitude, a mindset Based on the fact of who God is, we choose to act in that way. It's what flows from a heart that is surrendered to Jesus. And we choose to view that person as God views that person. Now, they may be an enemy of God. How does God view them? They're my enemy. How should I view them? If I'm a disciple of Jesus, I do not have the authority to treat someone as unloved since Jesus showed them love in a way that goes beyond feelings. In the kingdom, I don't have the right to deny someone kindness and generosity. I don't get to say I can't stand that person because God says they're made in my image. You need to love them and pray for them. Yes, even your enemies. So Jesus goes on. We'll finish in a few moments. It says, for if you love the one who loves you, what reward will you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brother and sister, what are you doing out of the ordinary? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? It's interesting, isn't it? As human beings, we tend to gravitate towards people that are similar to us. Have you noticed that? We tend to gather in groups because actually our love is quite self-centered. And let me, let me tell you, this isn't just like people. I was with some church leaders this week. It was hilarious being in the room because you walk in and... Church ministers kind of know each other, or they're, they're into the same thing, or they, their way of doing church is similar. And I just walk in, and I'm just like, where's my little gang? There we go. And you just gravitate towards the people. You just know in this space. And you, I'm looking around, and I'm just going, yeah, that's that group, that's that group, this is this group. And it's not that we don't get on with each other, but you're just gravitating towards those people that you have something in common with. What about those people that are unconnected? What about the disconnected and the rejected? Nicky Gumbel says, to return evil for good is demonic. To return good for good is human. To return good for evil is the way of Jesus. To love those that are disconnected. To seek out in a room, who are the ones that's on their own? 
Who's the one that's been rejected? If you have love for those, what reward will it be? Love for those who love you, what reward will it be? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brother and sister, what are you doing out of the ordinary? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? Jesus is constantly raising the bar. Constantly saying, don't get comfortable with your love. Don't just gravitate towards those that you know. I wonder what kind of community we are. I was stirred as I was thinking this through. What kind of community of God's love are we? People around us. People that come into this church space. What are we like when we're in our homes? And we're talking about people. Parents, do you bad mouth your loved ones when there's others around you in your home? When we meet up as a church, as missional households, as church friends, are we sowing seeds of animosity uh, towards someone else by our words and our deeds? God's love is for the enemy. We've got to be really careful about the seeds that we're sowing towards others in our conversations. Are we known as a people that just grumble and complain? Or is there life and generosity and love? The kingdom is a community of people that do not operate the way the world operates. The kingdom is a community where God's children reflect how the Father operates. And so the love isn't just self-centered around, this is what I'm comfortable doing, and this is really winding me up, so let me get around a group of people that we can have a really good rant about. No, we move towards the people that we don't understand, and we love in those places, then spaces that don't make sense. God's kingdom starts to move and shift the spaces and places we find ourselves. And then Jesus ends this six, you have heard that it was said, teachings, with something really quite challenging, where he says in verse 48, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Good night, God bless, have a fantastic day. Just let you wrestle with that one. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. I'm like, I'm reading that, and I'm just going, whoa, okay, that, I may as well give up now. Absolutely no way. If that's the call, I fall short every single day. Remember, this is the culmination. This is like the climactic moment of these six teachings of you have heard that it was said. So be perfect. Now, what's interesting is if you read Luke's version of Jesus' uh, teaching, Jesus, um, Jesus spoke Aramaic. Okay? Didn't, he would have known Hebrew because it was what was read in the, in, the, in the synagogues, but he spoke Aramaic. Probably knew a bit of Greek because that was the culture and the language he found himself in, but he, knew, he spoke Aramaic. So he spoke this in Aramaic. It was then translated into Greek for the New Testament. The word that Luke uses in his moment, in this moment, is different to the Greek word that Matthew uses. So we have to understand in this moment, it's not that they're, they're conflicting. It's actually that there's, this, we need to try and understand what this is about. That maybe, maybe there's, there's some understanding that we need to get in this. Because the word that's translated in Greek, in, in Luke, he says, be merciful as your heavenly father is merciful. Here in Matthew, it's be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. See, what's being got at here is uh, most scholars would agree that actually this word perfect is about maturity. It's not about complete perfection, never making a mistake. It's about you've become who you were created to be. So there's a fullness. The words used to describe someone who has reached a point of maturity in their growth and development as a human. So it's about completeness. A mature Christian will treat everyone with equality, both loving their friends and their enemies. 
This is a call to be a mature Christian. To say, I want you to grow. Don't settle with where you are. Don't settle with who's around you. I want you to grow. To be full. To be mature. Jesus says if we do this, then we start to behave like our Heavenly Father. When we love like this, we're entering into the meaning of how God created us to reflect His image into the world. To bear God's image. Jesus is inviting us in this moment to live into and out of the new life that he creates in us when we surrender to him. It's the kingdom life, growing in maturity, that Jesus practiced loving your enemies. He came into this world, a world full of enemies of God, and he walks in love, and he gives his life for you and for me as a ransom, paying a price that we could never pay to turn God's enemies into God's friends. And as Jesus was on that cross, what does he cry? His enemies have nailed him to a cross. And what does he cry? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. In the moment of his most brokenness, he displays his most affection for the enemy. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. It's the same that we see of Stephen in Acts 7. There's this maturity in, that we see in him of, of praying for those that are stoning him. It's profound. So we recognize that Jesus has already set a model for us. And we trust that as we walk with him in day-to-day life, that the attitude and the change within us by the Spirit will start to help us to see our enemies uh, as ones that we can love as much as our neighbors, as much as our closest friends. So I want to give you just at the end of this just some really practical things that we can step into. I don't always do this, but just some real practical stuff that we could start to look at. My question is, who do you need to forgive? Who do you need to forgive? How do you go about forgiving them? Jesus says, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So who is it you need to forgive And it may not be a one-time thing, but over and over again. Who is it that you need to be praying for? Pray over and over and over again. How about looking at that person and considering them a victim too? That we read in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So instead of getting up on our high and mighty pedestal of you've done me wrong, you've hurt me, but let's see them as a victim. Shift the mindset. How about doing them good when you've got any opportunity to? Romans 12 verse 17 says, Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. That is not, that's not as evil as it sounds. It's an idiom. I haven't got time to go into it. You don't get to hurt them. That's not what that means, but um, do good to them. Uh, do not overcome evil, but overcome evil with good. So at every opportunity, can you show them good? So my questions for you as we finish. I wonder if the band can just come up and play. Ben, if you just come play some piano and just something in a nice... Holy Spirit key would be perfect. I've never discovered if minors or majors are where the Holy Spirit works, but we'll find out in a minute. Oh, diminished. Let's see in a minute which, which it is. It was a major. 
Is there any hostility in any of your immediate relationships? Just as I'm speaking these questions, if somebody comes to mind, then trust that that may be the Holy Spirit just saying, you know, that, that is it, isn't it? That's the person that I'm asking you to pray for right now. Is there any hostility in any of your immediate relationships? How is God inviting you to love them? Have a conversation with God. You know, he replies. Do you know that? He does actually respond. And sometimes they might just drop something, a thought or a moment. Do you have any enemies? Do you have a competitor in your career or studies? Maybe someone in your street. Is there a group of people that you honestly, is there a group of people that you would have hatred towards? I'm just going to give a few moments just for some personal time for prayer. I'm not going to get you at the front. I'm not going to pray over you. We're going to close in a few minutes. And I'm just going to invite you just to ask yourself these questions. Pray through that, those thoughts. And just let the Spirit of God just speak right now. And respond. Maybe God needs to soften your heart. Maybe there's some forgiveness that you need to ask God to help you with. So in this moment, just a few moments of silence, and then I'll draw things to a close as we pray.